Hi, I'm Lindsay from the World Food Forum. And I'm Sarah from Kitchen Connection. Welcome to Food for the Future, where young people are serving up action for change. Hi everyone, it's Sarah here. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm coming to you today from Brooklyn, New York. I'm looking forward to discussing a topic today that's both timely, complicated, and critically important for the future of our food, systematic racism in the food system. I'm joined today by anti-racist historian and organizer, David Billings. David is the author of Deep Denial, The Persistence of White Supremacy in United States History and Life, which is part popular history and part personal memoir, chronicling the history of and his experience within white supremacy in America. He leads anti-racist trainings at the New Orleans-based People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, works with the Anti-Racist Alliance of Social Workers, and is an ordained United Methodist minister. David, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. David, many of our listeners know that the current food system is unsustainable. Global food waste costs $2.6 trillion per year, but 815 million people are food insecure. And all the while, 71% of global deaths can be attributed to nutrition-related diseases. Where our listeners may not piece together is how the current food system structure in many Western countries that have a global ripple effect is quite literally built upon the exploitation of enslaved persons and immigrants from the times of the transatlantic slave trade onwards. Since those harms are built into the bedrock of our food system in seemingly inextricable ways, they can be hard for everyday consumers to spot. For those that may not be familiar with the intersection of racism and the food system, can you give us a brief history of that relationship? Yes, you know, and you put it quite well in the sense that Really, there's nothing in the United States, and now even as we look at the world because of the interconnectedness of our world, that's not also connected to race. If you go back to the continent of Africa and the capture that led to the enslavement of Africans, you will find that one of the great social control, if you can put it that way, utilized in that enslavement process was starvation, preventing persons being enslaved from eating, much less eating properly. So that over the generations, we find that particularly in communities of color and most particularly in black communities in the United States, you will find that same disparity built in to the food system all of these systems, every one of them, from the food system, who gets to eat what, as opposed to who is responsible for growing and picking, is based on race. That adjective puts you in a different relationship to every system in the United States, regardless of how otherwise oppressed you might be, which is what minority means, not in terms of your numbers. A lot of people think, well, you know, whites are going to be the minority. No, they're not. As long as white people, as collectives, control the institutions and thus the systems sanctioned by the state, we will be the primary beneficiaries 
of the systemic outcome. And the flimp side of that is that people of color, especially black people, indigenous people, will bear the brunt. That was the arrangement back then. Those systemic outcomes still remain true today. And I just want to clarify for our listeners that racism is not just active prejudice or individual racist acts. It's also this historical legacy of privilege that you're pointing out uh, that privileges one group of people over others. So how have the effects of this history that you've just briefly described, how are the effects of that still felt in the food system today, even though slavery was technically abolished in the United States in 1865? Well, you can see it in every aspect of the food system from malnourishment to those even in this wealthy nation who don't get enough to eat. The food system, how accessible, not only whole food, How available is it? Well, in communities that are seen as uh, communities of color, particularly black communities, indigenous communities, there are often the access to whole food products are just not easily obtained. And this goes back to the enslavement process where, you know, you can feed certain people anything. That's the idea. They don't deserve This is historically speaking, but it's also a cultural statement. So you have to work hard if you are a person in any of the communities of color as this nation designates race and be insistent upon access to the type of food that you would want and that would make you healthy. Always say particularly black people because of a strain Uh, anti-blackness in this society uh, that both blames black people for their situation without explaining that situation and without taking into account the history of systemic and social control mechanisms. So there's no aspect of the food system that is not impacted by this history. And we see the outcomes today during the COVID epidemic, we always have to mention that it's hitting people of color, particularly black people, much harder. That doesn't mean that others are not being hit hard, that don't experience death and dying. It means that there's a disparity that is built into the nation's arrangement that is based on race. In fact, when I was growing up in Mississippi in a total white supremacist environment, I would hear as commonplace language and linguistic, I might be poor, but at least I'm white. That was just a refrain. It didn't even require examination. All of these things are internalized. If I internalize it, it's somewhere inside me. And when I meet my growing edge, then it comes out, whiteness even if we who are white don't understand it at all. It comes out. And so if I took every decade of my life, I said, what's the message out there? And how might I have internalized it? I realized the extent to which I had internalized a sense of superiority, racially speaking, 
that I had internalized a sense of entitlement, that I deserve, for example, to be fed. I deserve to have the best food. These were givens, were part of white supremacy. And now do you view those givens as a construct of whiteness or as universal human rights that we should maybe rework our language around to think that all humans deserve good food and deserve to be fed in a certain way? This is what I, I say to that, and you're absolutely correct. These should be universal rights. These should be human rights having to do with our, our humanity and our connection. But we just can't say it. We've got to really be working for a way that we can see equity happening. It's not going to happen all at once, but a lot of us have learned the language. We know what to say, a lot of us who are white, and see ourselves as being more progressive or maybe than some other white people. We've learned the language. We haven't always or rarely have collectives of white people organized to what the People's Institute calls the undoing of racism. Started doing this work 40 years ago. In some ways, people were more honest. They came to various types of workshops having to do with race. And they were they said, you know, I really haven't thought about this a whole lot. I I don't know, you know, when asked. You know, how do you define race and racism? Do you have some understanding of the history? They would often say, no, you could begin then when people say, you know, I don't know. I, I've never thought about it. That's a good point. Now, today, the challenge is just the opposite. Everybody knows everything. Everybody's read the latest book. Everybody can quote cast. And that, in some ways, makes it more difficult because the question would be, if that's who you are, why are the disparities still so great? Why are the outcomes still the same? If you know so much, meaning me, about the process of how I became white and the history behind it, would you stop being white if you had the choice? Would you give up all the advantages, not just as a person, which I might say, yeah. I said, well, you know, think of your grandchildren then. Think of where you live. Think of where you go to school. All of these things that have to do with life. If I could tell you a story, Black Lives Matter passed my house in Riverdale, and I now don't have as much mobility as I once did. So I was listening to it as they passed my window here in the Bronx. And at one time, I realized I would have been a part of that march. I was still supportive of that march, I would say. But then I began to wonder, what if they knocked on my door? What if I came down the stairs? Who would they see? Would they see someone who physically embodied all that they were marching to change? Who is this older white guy? And then I realized the fear the fear that went beyond what was in my head and the fear that was in my heart. And what did I realize? I had never lived one day of my life, neither had my parents' generation or that my grandparents' generation. I had never lived one day outside of the protective 
umbrella of white supremacy. So I could say just about anything. I could be as radical as I wanted to be. I could say, you know, take it all down. And yet every aspect of my life was the result of this arrangement where I was the intended beneficiary. One other example, I'm a historian, as you said, and I was giving the history in the context of a undoing racism workshop right before COVID shut us all, pushed us all inside. And an African-American woman in the audience came to me at the break and said, you know, what you say is very interesting. And I don't know, she said to me, if I've heard another white person and particularly white males speak as you do. She said, but I still wish that you weren't the one who said it. Damn, what is that? Here am I, my mid-70s, having a career of trying to undo this arrangement. And still there's something about when I speak that doesn't sound liberatory. It sounds like you continue to think that you are rightfully in charge. That's how I heard it. It was a real experience. I didn't like it, but I haven't forgot it either. And as you said, it probably tipped you closer to your growing edge um, and was useful in that respect. I'm glad that you pointed out that so many of us grow up with sort of this nice liberal complex. You know, we we think we're doing it right. Um, Because that leads into my next question. You say in one of your papers that race is always on the table. If it's not on top of the table, then it's right under it. It's an omnipresent issue. So why do you think that despite its pervasiveness, racism is so seldomly mentioned in international programs for food security and agricultural development? Is it a self-protective mechanism from people that are called white? Largely, yes. It can have many different dimensions to it. And on the world stage, there are some that argue that race is not always a predominant factor like it is in the United States. But I would respectfully interrogate that a bit differently because I think that because of the particular world power of the United States, that race is one of our greatest exports, greatest in the sense of most dramatic exports. Thus, there is no place on earth, although we might feel uncomfortable, you'll hear some of us who are white say, I was in such and such a country and I was the only white person there. It helped me understand what it must mean to be a minority. No, no, not at all. That's not what you're talking about, you know, because even as a single white person in a black nation, let's say, you are protected in ways that you haven't been acculturated to even notice, much less understand. So it's an export. So there is no place in this world where white is not a protective status That doesn't mean that terrible things don't happen to white people. In the same way, and on the opposite polarity, there is no such thing, there's no such place in this world where a black person 
fully belongs, that is not, I'll say singled out, but, you know, is somehow, it's not a factor in how they're moving through the world. These types of things, if you ask uh, those of us who are white, what do you like about being white? Man, I'd rather be called a racist than have to answer what I like about being white. Because I depend on whiteness. I depend on it for protection even as I march against police, let's say. I still depend and still understand that that protect and serve on the door speaks to me in the same way that someone who is of color might see that differently. Uh, I still know that when I'm in the bank or in the food line that it's arranged for me and mine in ways that are different than others. I try to be conscious and yet at the same time you don't see me giving it up either you know and that's why I have to continue to struggle and work not as an individual it is a part of a collective I worked with folk in New Orleans for many years and often with a team of people in public housing and the residents had a way of saying to me you know David you 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 okay you're pretty good. You're going to get white on us in a minute. The first time I heard that, I was shocked because these are people that I had relationships with that had seen me work. They said, no, 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 no. Don't take it like that. Just understand that you have ways to center yourself and your own experience as opposed to ours and our experience. And I've never forgotten that. They weren't saying they didn't like me or I should we were. They just said that's how it is until it's not. And in the case of the global food system and international efforts to combat food insecurity, I think it's worth noting that due to enslaved BIPOC labor in the United States, that's kind of how our food system was able to become so globalized. And it's crazy to me that those who built the foundations of our modern food and agriculture system by cultivating cash crops for mass consumption are now deliberately excluded from this, you know, sort of empire that they helped build. And big companies that are based in the U.S. continue to write off food producers in the global south by commodifying their products and disrupting their local food systems as well. Uh, so I would really strongly agree with you that whenever international food insecurity is being discussed, racism, particularly the flavor of which we see in the United States needs to be on the table. It's both a root cause and an action area. You know, you, you say it beautifully. And the challenge for someone, for many of us, and I always try to use my own self as an example, is that I might know what you just said and agree with what you just said, and yet it's very easy for me to stay in my head about it not reach that that edge that we speak of where I just can't live with this anymore. I'm going to work to change it in ways that put my own entitlement and everything at risk. That's easy to say and it's really hard to do. 
mm-hmm. but you, you nailed it. It's not ironic at all in one sense that if you know the history, but these contradictions of those who grow the food not only don't own the, you know, they're not a part of it. When the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt, it excluded migrant workers from any of the benefits that the New Deal was providing. And migrant workers included not just those south of the border or who had been brought over the border, but also those farm workers, those domestic workers that grew the food and yet didn't have any structural power to be independent landowners, you know, black farmers who once constituted millions of people and millions of acres, now about two, three percent. So well, how difference does that make? Well, it makes a lot of difference, you know, when you understand who gets to decide what you can eat and that sort of thing and whether it's nutritious and can you feed your whole group, whatever you call your family, can you maintain? Are you always dependent on somebody, something else? This is complicated, but I love the way that you put, you know, this whole arrangement is replete with contradictions. And I say, based on my experience and have been taught by many, embrace the contradictions, don't run from them. Look at them and locate yourself in them. Don't say it's about others, but how is it about yourself? So would that be your advice to folks listening to the podcast? If you could give them a directive for after they finish the episode and they feel like they're ready to go beyond thought or word and move into action to combat racism in the food system, where would you point those folks? Yeah, it would be, I would say on a personal level, try to emphasize where do you hit the wall in these discussions, even when you're just thinking about them. What are your greatest fears? And admit that you have them. Don't say you're open to anything. No, you're not. You're subject to all the fears that encompass the human condition. On the other hand, on a more, on a larger systemic level, you can't do this by yourself. And a lot of us try to organize and somehow skip over those that are closest to us. We can be on a national stage and not be able to talk to our parents. We can write books and not be able to talk to our siblings because they feel blamed or left out or somehow accused by us who have, you know, think we know a little bit more. How do you organize? I think, and again, this is something I've learned, you start with those closest to you and then spiral out. You know, it's not one, two, three, four in terms of recreating hierarchies. It's how do you organize? And that doesn't mean when, say, closest to you that it's always family in the traditional sense. It might be workplace situations. It could be others who share your identity or your your own experience. But start with those who love you. 
I was taught racism by those who loved us, not those who hated it. There were certainly those in our, our circles, but that's not who taught us the, what I call the race construct, you know, that there somehow was, was something different. So I would, I would hope that people would do that. Start with your growing edge, as we say, or start with, can you touch your greatest fear when it comes to race? Can we begin there and never mention what book we've read or what speaker we've heard, but just start with self-examination, but it can't stay there. It has to move to collective action. And collective action has to connect the dots. The food system is connected to the other systems. So we can't just stay where our passion would lead us we have to make the connection, as you did in, in your opening statements, to these other systems that both impact the food system and are impacted by it. And that leads us really nicely to my last question, David. Do you think we can build a healthier food system without addressing systemic racism? No, I don't think we can build a, a healthy system of any type in this country without addressing races. I agree. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today and for your work. Listeners, you can purchase David's book online at deepdenialbook.com or through your favorite local bookstore or online retailer. Proceeds support the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. David, it's truly been a pleasure. For more from Kitchen Connection, follow us on social media or visit kitchenconnection.org. And to learn more about the World Food Forum, you can follow us on social media or visit our website at world-food-forum.org.